Oh, hi. Oh, hi. Look at this baby. Oh, my God. <laughs> There's a boy. Oh, my God. That's great. Oh, so beautiful. Yeah, he is the perfect angel. Oh, just one second. I have to confirm and pay for a thing. Okay. I am buying feet for... You're buying feet pics live on the podcast. Okay, my order's in. Great. I'm sorry. I was in the middle of putting in an offer for some cast iron stove legs, wood stove legs. Oh. Yes, for my wood stove, which is not manufactured anymore. And for this whole year, it's been held up on three legs and a cinder block. Oh, yeah. Classic. So you're going to put another leg on it. Will you have to like get a welder to weld it on no, or no, what? It's just screwed. It's just bolted. There's just a Oh yeah, I bolt. guess that makes a lot more fucking sense if yeah. I think about it for literally one second. So I think I'm going to get the car jack and just jack up the stove and remove yeah. the cinder block and put a leg on. Just That's a good solution. I'm a little tired of looking at a cinder block in my kitchen. Yeah, that's fair. Actually, can I tell you a secret? Yeah. The cabinets are on cinder blocks too. Oh my god. I know. I know. How dare you? How gauche. How gauche indeed. How goish. It's the gay dream, you know? Move to the woods. Put everything on cinder blocks. <laughs> yep. And slowly remove them from cinder blocks. Yeah. Were you gonna ask how I am? Is that what you were about to uh, say? I was I was Hava. How <laughs> how are you? This week is a little bit of a crucible for me. I am really just like the probably the busiest I'll be for the whole winter. God willing, the busiest I'll be for the whole winter. Not like in a Giles Corey kind of way, right? What kind of way? You know, the crucible, Giles Corey. Uh, I don't remember the, all the character names from the crucible. Oh, Giles Corey was the one who was crushed with stones and more weight, more weight. Oh. I see. The Crucible character that always stands out for me is like Goody. I always think of like, I saw Goody with the devil. I frequently say I saw blank with the devil in context where it makes sense as a joke. Oh, okay. So like never, because there's never a context (laughs) where that makes any sense. No, there are are times when it makes sense. I can't summon one of those contexts to mind right now. But trust me, sometimes it works. Yes, so it's very much a crucible this week. I am deeply exhausted, but at midnight tomorrow, the new Pokemon game will release. And so also will the shackles upon my soul be released simultaneously. I don't like Pokemon. I don't really care for Pokemon. Is this going to be like that one that came out five years ago or so where you you catch Pokemon in the real world? Is it one of those? No, it's not one of those. It's a regular ass Pokemon. You're thinking of Pokemon Go. Oh, yeah. Okay. Pokemon yeah. Go. This is just a regular regular Pokemon. I mean, to Pokemon fans, there's a lot of cool things happening with it. But I don't know that there's any that I could impress upon you in these few minutes <laughs> that would explain why it's cool to me. Try to, to someone who doesn't care about Pokemon. Tell me why, how Pokemon is cool, could be cool, will be cool. How it could be cool, how it will be cool. Well... In this one, it is a big old open world. So if you recall, I'm assuming you had childhood Pokemon experiences. Very little, but yeah, I remember like on the Game Boys, the red cartridge and the blue cartridge. In a historical Pokemon experience, you're sort of going from Pokemon Gem to Pokemon Gem. You're sort of on almost on a train track of like progressing the story and leveling up your Pokemons. Wait, you're on a gem or on a jam? 
gym. You're fighting. Oh, a gym. Oh. Other Pokemon trainers at Pokemon gyms. You're a Texas girl. Oh my god. But yeah, so in this one, instead, it is very freeform. There's like a big world full of Pokemon, and you go explore it and find the challenges in whatever order works for you. So that's a very cool and new approach for the series. Is there a storyline? Yeah, storyline is never really the strong point of of Pokemon games. It's a mechanics forward series. Okay. Okay. Um I mean the the storyline in every Pokemon game is you want to be the very best like no one ever was and so you need to go challenge the eight gym leaders of your region to prove you're the best and then become the Pokemon champion of your region. For every mainline game that is the main thing that's happening and then there are often background things that are happening. So like in one of the best generations, the third generation of Pokemon, there's Team Magma and Team Aqua. And this is like what makes them one of the best villains of the series. Team Magma's mission is they want to cause a massive volcanic eruption so that basically a bunch of lava like covers the entire ocean so that the whole world is land because they think land is just like better. And Team Aqua wants to flood the world so that it's like water world. (laughs) I'm not about it. I can't be so easily seduced. I need a little bit more plot You can, just not by this. I need more flirtation. Like, I think Fallout. Fallout 1, Mm -hmm. there was more flirtation there. It was an open world, but you got like a a compelling storyline. I don't know. I mean, far be it from me to try to force you to like a video game, but I think we all have a little bit of self-seriousness to overcome when it comes to getting into video games. We all have a little disbelief we need to suspend. I know, I know, but you just the cheap thrills, the cheap thrills. You love cheap thrills. You are a cheap thrill. I know, I know, I know, I know. Anyway, yeah, I mean, what's so beautiful and wonderful about Pokemon to me is just like, you know, collecting all these wonderful creatures and then they become my friends and then I take them all over the world and we conquer challenges together. What could be better than that? All right, all right. So I'm really excited for that. I have a Pokemon sleepover planned with one of my very best friends. Oh my I'm going to go over on Thursday and sleep over and we're going to have a full 24 hours dedicated to Pokemon. That sounds like a lot of fun, actually. It's going to be freaking phenomenal. I can't wait. I'm just like counting the minutes. Oh, that's nice. I want to have a sleepover. Yeah, I know. That's why I wanted to plan this one, because the the desire for sleepover lives within all of us. I know it does. Slumber parties should just be a thing that happens that adults just do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a slumber party is how we ended up deciding to move out of our old apartment. When we were living with the roommate who shall not be named, this same friend invited me over for a slumber party because we hadn't seen each other for a long time. And then once I was out of the apartment, I just realized... How much I loved being out of the apartment and how much I didn't want to go back. Yeah, yeah. That was real bad. bad. That was the beginning of the end. Michael, how are you other than stove leg hunting? Well, I just dropped a couple Benjamins on some uh, stove parts. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm doing great, feeling great. Feeling good, feeling good. I'm going to hang them around my neck. Walk around town. Vintage wood-burning stove reconstructor, Michael Sokolovsky. Uh, yeah, uh, we're fixing the molding in the kitchen. That's fun. Wow, you're domestic. Oh, so domestic. We got some paint. We're going to paint the ceiling. I don't know mm-hmm. how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it. Oh, I got really excited this week because I bought 
a vacuum cleaner. Oh. Like a nice vacuum cleaner. Yeah. It's a German vacuum cleaner. So. Wow. What would your ancestors have to say about that? They'd be like, that's a good vacuum cleaner. For sure. <laughs> for sure. <sighs> um, That's dope. Good vacuum cleaner is a big life improver in my experience. Great. Listener question. It's another week of listener questions. That is right. Before we get into our listener question, I'm going to do that thing I do sometimes where I say that we love making this show for you all. And if you also love it and want to support us continuing to make it, we would love it if you became a patron on our Patreon at patreon.com slash hi, how are you? We have a big beefy back catalog of patron only episodes and... It just really helps us keep making all of the silliness that we love to make. Just something to think about. Either way, thank you for listening. And one of the things that we do with all that sweet patron support is we take time to answer your patron questions. Not your patron questions. We answer everybody's questions. But here is one of them <laughs> from a listener. Hello. I've been asked to read the Amida at the upcoming high holiday services at my local JCC. So obviously this is an old question, but... We got to it eventually, so give us some credit. I remember being taught to read the Amidah while facing east from the U.S. However, I'm a diasporic Jew with very limited connections to Israel. Where does this ask to face a direction come from? Can anyone come up with alternative interpretations that do not rely on considering Israel the single most important place on Earth? Thank you. Great question, listener. Very good question, listener. Very good. Michael? Yes. Your thoughts. It was interesting. Uh, I mean, yeah, I've, I've heard about the whole East thing. That's definitely a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, the Amidah was never a big part, I feel like, of uh, my Jewish experience. I mean, you grew up Reform. I've never actually been to Reform services. I've been to Renewal services, Reconstruction of services, and Conservative services, but never Reform services. So I don't really know what the Amidah experience is like in, in Reform world. It's, uh, it's like 18 or 19 blessings. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, I think the first three were pretty prominent. Um, mm-hmm. I don't really recall the remainder of the Amidah being like a big deal. Did you face east? Yeah, I'm pretty sure the synagogue was built to face east. Oh, so you, it didn't even require anything. I'll We'll get to this later, but I feel like it's kind of sketch for your synagogue to face east. Is it sketch? Really? Well, sketch is a strong word. I just think it's like, uh, okay, the, we're like dipping into it already. But I think part of the intention of facing East has to do with like focusing our hearts and minds. And if facing East requires no change or action from you, I think it's uh, failing as a tool of mindfulness and prayerful intention. <laughs> uh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. You know, that's curious. like, I don't think we're going to talk a lot about sacred place in this episode, but I don't think you can sort of like, uh, for example, like build whatever. If you if there's a sacred site, I don't think you can build your stuff on top of the sacred site and suck up the sacredness like an oil jack, you know? And that kind of feels like the equivalent of turning your synagogue east. I think you should Davka turn your synagogue not east because you should turn. Uh, okay, you, you, you made two different points. First point is, yeah, it's like an oil jack thing. So in that case, <laughs> you want to be intent. You want to like really show that that's what you're doing, in which case you need to physically turn east so you, your seat better not be oriented towards the east. So right. That's one point. And then you have another point, which is like, no, it doesn't work that way to begin with. So all of this is moot. Two different points. 
Yeah, I guess we should get into how around. I think it does work. Okay, okay. And well. how we both think it does work. Well, let's start with the, the most basic answer to our question, which is where does the ask to turn east come from? So there's a couple different places this comes up in the literature, but one of the most prominent is from Brachot 30a, where we read, One who's standing in prayer in the diaspora should focus their heart towards Eretz Yisrael, as it is stated, and they shall pray to you by way of their land from 1 Kings 8.48. One who was standing in Eretz Yisrael should focus his heart toward Jerusalem, as it's stated, and they shall pray to the Lord by the way of the city that you have chosen, 1 Kings 8.44. One who was standing in Jerusalem should focus his heart towards the temple, as it is stated, and they shall pray towards this house, 2 Chronicles 6.32. One who was standing in the temple should focus his heart towards the Holy of Holies, as it is stated, and they shall pray towards this place, 1 Kings 8.35. One who is standing in the Holy of Holies should focus his heart towards the seat of the Ark cover. One who is standing behind the seat of the Ark cover should visualize himself as standing before the Ark cover and turn toward it. Consequently, all the people of Israel find themselves focusing their hearts toward one place. So, this is one rationale. Is It seems like there's two mechanisms at work here. One is the rabbis are reading this set of verses as telling us to pray towards a particular place. And it seems like the actual place is more so the Ark is actually more the place. And the Ark happens to be like within several other concentric circles of geographical holiness, according to these rabbis. And the ultimate goal is actually like communal focus. Interesting. Okay. Ultimate goal is communal focus. We all have to come to some sort of communal agreement. So Jerusalem seems to be communally decided upon. So by democratic vote, that's a good place to pray. <laughs> but where's the Ark of the Covenant located? Some people say it's in the, the Ethiopian Christian church. Right. It depends on whether you think the thing that we're supposed to be focusing on is the Ark or the place where the Ark would be. Yeah. Like yeah, the yeah. point in space. We're going to get into another rationale, but. I think there's a couple ways to think about this. I do think a lot of people today think about this in a Zionist way. I think there are people who think of the literal nation state of Israel as being part of where they're focusing their hearts towards. And I think there are people, religious anti-Zionists, who acknowledge the sacredness of a particular place because of the experiences the Jews had there having a temple that is not necessarily like a Zionist thing to acknowledge yeah and i wonder if that's how people for most of history have thought of it because for most of history there wasn't an israel or a zionist movement really yeah i mean many people have written better writing about this than me but for a long time it was not the consensus for instance, in America, that Zionism should be the sort of de rigueur position of everyone. There was like a lot of open political disagreement across all kinds of Jewish communities. I think even within those communities, there was still a sense of sacredness about the former temple site disconnected from the political ambitions of Zionism. Well, one strategy the listener could adopt is to not think about facing towards like a nation state, but mm -hmm. is to, you know, you're facing towards some sort of place associated with some spiritual power in the past mm -hmm. uh, that has a great amount of importance for how Judaism evolved. Yeah, I mean, if anything, I would say 
Zionism took advantage of that spiritual yeah, yeah, yeah. fact rather than the other way around. Yeah, that wouldn't that wouldn't surprise me if that's true, which it seems like it is. Theodore Herzl, considered to be many one of the architects of political Zionism, would have been happy for the state of Israel to be in all kinds of different places. I think it's a uh, a particular political choice of using Jewish spiritual tradition that the Zionist movement made to intermix the ideas of the sacredness of place and of this political project. Part of the reason I sort of am into trying to reclaim some things like this is because for me personally, it feels like I would rather not like give up the idea of sacred place to Zionism. Like, it feels like if I say I can't face East without it being part of a Zionist project, I'm saying, like, they win, and sacredness of place and Zionism have, like, become synonymous, and I've accepted that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, so you could continue to face East, listener, and know that you're in pretty good historic company that people doing it are doing it for nothing related to national stuff. I mean, we could be reading into your question a little bit, but... yeah. But you can know that there are many ways to think about this. I also want to share friend of the show, Binya Koatz, who I want to have on the show. I asked her about this because I knew she had a take. And I want to have her on the show at some point to talk about Zion outside of Zionism, because I think that'll be a good episode. And I'm sure she'll hear this and know that we should schedule time to have her on the show. But she was saying she, when she prays East, she thinks of it as praying towards Brooklyn, the other Jewish homeland. So... um you know, there's all kinds of ways to relate to this tradition. I feel like I read that like Atlantic Jews, like Jews living in, in the Americas in like the 1600s, they were very messianic. And I know the Truro Synagogue faces east, the oldest synagogue. I'm pretty sure it faces east. The oldest synagogue in America in Rhode Island. And, and I feel like a lot of facing east is associated with like the world to come and like messianic desire. Well, that gives us, that's a good segue into our next possible rationale, which comes from Bava Batra 25A. Oh, how do I want to start reading this? We could start with the original Rabbi Akiva Baraita, which I think is interesting. Okay, so come here what's taught in a Baraita. Rabbi Akiva says, one may establish a tannery on any side of the city and a distance of 50 cubits except for the west side, where you may not establish a tannery at all because the western wind is frequent. Well, what is the actual meaning of frequent? It's frequent with the divine presence, a.k.a. the divine presence is found on the western side, and therefore it's inappropriate to set up a tannery there with its foul odors, because tanneries involved a bunch of piss. As Rabbi Yehoshua ben, Le <laughs> glossing. As Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi says, come and let us be grateful to our ancestors who revealed to us the place of prayer, as it is written, and the host of heavens bow down to you, from Nehemiah 9.6. So basically, since the sun moves from east to west, they're bowing in that direction, which indicates that the divine presence is in the west. And Rav Sheshet holds, too, that the divine presence is in every place. As Rav Sheshet said to his servant, set me facing in any direction to pray except for the east, because he was asking his assistant to turn him the right way to pray because he was blind. And the reason I don't face east is not because it doesn't contain the divine presence, but rather because heretics instruct people to pray in that direction, because it's where mm, the sun rises, yep, yep. it's where the sun worshippers pray. And Rabbi Abahu says the divine presence is in the west. I'll add that Rav Ahabar Yaakov, he objects 
that the divine presence is more in the West. He says it's more in the East because the sun and the celestial bodies, they rise from, they go from West to East. And that's like a servant who receives a gift from his master and walks backwards while bowing. (laughs) Wild. Yes. So we have two, so we have more divine presence to the East because of the celestial movement. Same evidence is used to justify it in the other ordinal direction. So there's all sorts of debate. Right. So, if the listener wanted a reason to Davka not pray to the East, Rav Sheshet has provided plenty, basically. Rav Sheshet was like, don't turn me that direction because I'll look like a sun worshiper. Specifically, turn me anyway except the East. So, if you want to pray in the tradition of Rav Sheshet, you have a, a strong foundation there. You know what is something I was reading? The direction that you pray in is not necessarily in like the compass direction. That's the Mercator map projection of the world, but it's like the shortest distance followed by the curve. I see. So I should pray like directly into the ground. No, no, no. At least a partial angle into the ground. <laughs> that's the actual shortest distance. I mean, like right. the, for the travelable shortest distance, like if you're in New York City, you have to like Pray northwest as opposed to southwest. Mm-hmm. You can imagine a plane flying over the earth. It's like, I don't know. I don't know. Wow. Well, you don't know. I don't know any about any of that boy stuff, but yeah, um, it's totally, it's totally boy stuff. I don't know about, <laughs> I don't know about facts. Um, Planes and angles. I just have to work at my needlework, you know, and sit in the sun and chat with the other ladies. Oh, sounds great. Yeah. So clearly one potential rationale for the direction of where to pray is presence of the divine. And there is strong disagreement about the appropriate place where that divinity actually is. So this is an interpretation that I would say definitely doesn't rely on anywhere being the most single most sacred place on Earth. So that's one option you could take. Yep, that is one option. And now I want us to spin off into talking about just... What is a sacred place? Oh, what is a sacred place? Sacred place. What is it good for? Yeah. Uh, Michael, have you ever been to a sacred place? Yes, I have. Huh? Where was it? Thanks for asking. <laughs> I've been to a sacred place. I've been to sacred places. Mm, can't talk about that one. On the oh. Uh, oh, goodness. I've... I feel like my high school theater was like a sacred place you know how so it's just like a a place of community you know we're all like teenagers and it was a good community of people and we had a great director and a great set of teachers and parent faculty that support us and it was just this place we could all go to at the end of the school day and Hmm. you know really nice high school experience so yeah i would say that was a sacred experience probably Hmm. one of my earliest that lines up with what i think is one of my criteria that i think makes a sacred place which i think that sacred places are almost always in some way tended to by humans either Physically, manually, or just via attention, via thought, via consciousness. I think of sacredness as, um, have you ever seen like pictures of a statue that's part of a pilgrimage and you can see the places everyone touches during the pilgrimage because they'll be all shiny? That shininess is the sacredness of place. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Places accrue that through our attention, whether that attention is either via touch or via 
presence or via thought. Like that's how sacredness accrues to a place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, I don't even know sacred. You know, it's 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 a it's a. I almost feel more comfortable using the word magical. Like there's magical mm-hmm. places, and definitely right. there's places where I couldn't even name where they were, but just where the steps were worn down. You know. Right. Right. And in this sense, I think facing towards the east sort of keeps, for instance, the place where the Ark would be as a sacred place. Because every time someone faces east, they're doing their little Mm -hmm. tending to that place with their consciousness. You know, on the flip side, I've had that kind of sacred magical place experience on the opposite side of places that used to be tended to and now no longer are. Mm. Uh, what comes to mind is like the east side of Providence, the sidewalks that tree roots are growing through. And like mm-hmm. now the sidewalk is like undulating and, and kind of, I don't know, maybe that is, it is sort of maintained like the trees. I mean, turning. it sounds like it's the, it's the fact that it was tended that is yes. viewing it for you. Yes, it was tended and still. now it's not. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think natural spaces can still fill this. I think there are many cultures throughout time who have had sacred places that are not constructions or man-made artifices that are still sacred because of how they're held in cultural and individual consciousness. When I lived in the rainforest in Washington state, a lot of Washington has been very logged because it's big logging country. And we lived in this valley and up on one of the hills that made the valley, there was this little cap of old growth forests, so this little cap of forest that had never been cut since ever, since all of time. So you could take a really long hike. There was no path up there, but you could take a really long hike to go up there and hang out with the old growth trees. And it wasn't like state park, which can be sacred in its own way. It was just like uncut. And also you had to like make a kind of pilgrimage to access it. And that was a very rich experience of sacred place. For me, personally, and the arduous journey there, like, really enhanced it. It's like sacred places are places that people either are in contact with a lot, with a lot of intention, at least at one point, or they're, are like, almost untouched, you know. Right. Not actually, but... Yeah, I mean, maybe what defines it is, like, the contrast between human attention and inattention. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it felt especially sacred to me to go up there because we're always sitting down on the farm looking up at the hill and thinking like oh like that's where i want to go up to the old growth this weekend you know like our hearts and minds were directed towards it frequently wow yeah it was a very special time in a very special place here's some stuff that the tradition says about sacred place so obviously i thought the most notable example of sacred place was in exodus 3 5 when moses is hanging out with the burning bush and hashem says don't come closer Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. Adamat Kadeshu. This is holy ground, basically. So, Rabbeinu Bachya, who is a beloved figure of mine, someone who straddled the Jewish and Sufi worlds, fascinating figure, very important to me, interpreted this remove your shoes to mean, according to the plain meaning of the text, the angel warned Moses to remove his shoes on account of the holiness of the site. This was to serve as a warning to not be disrespectful when addressed by the Shekhinah, aka God's presence. We find something similar in Exodus 23, where God tells Moses to be on his guard in the presence of the angel because God's name was within him. Rabbeinu Bachia doesn't do a lot to clarify what might be inherently holy about this ground, 
but it seems like part of what the deal is is a holy place is a place where you're likely to come into contact with divine presence. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would, I would, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which could be all kinds of different places. Mm, yeah. I'm just thinking now, I'm imagining myself teleported to where the Ark might sit and wondering if I would be more or less likely to have an encounter with the Divine Presence there than anywhere else. I don't know the answer to that question for myself. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Would love to know where it is, though. So if anyone has a lead. <laughs> anyone has a Raiders of the Lost Ark situation, we're available. Oh, that'd be cool. I really hope it's not, you know, like in the like the CIA uh, stored away in some like building. I hope it's like buried someplace cool. That's... Yeah, me too. I would be very annoyed if the CIA had it. That would be like the worst ending. Yeah, no, it would be terrible. Then another thing that I was thinking about was I was thinking about this thing that I say all the time, which is I, I often define God as the ground of all being, which I felt like must have some intersection with this idea of sacred place. Because I, oft, I often think of God that way, sort of reflexively, without thinking about it, what it means for God to be ground, like for God to literally be place. And we had a whole episode about God as place and the name Hamakom and like, how does that intersect with the idea of sacred place. So it turns out the idea of God as the ground of being comes from Christian theologian Paul Tillich. Oh. Yeah. And I just picked it up from somewhere else and like integrated it into my brain without knowing that it came from Paul Tillich. And Paul Tillich calls God the ground of being in part because God is the answer to the ontological threat of non-being. Oh. Basically, God is the... Uh, the foundation that we can philosophically and spiritually stand on when confronted by the threat of non-being, which we're all confronted by all the time. So that's wild, I guess. It's interesting to think about a sacred place and God as a sacred place that like gives us a foundation to stand on in the face of mortality. I think it brings the ground of all being just reminds me it's, it brings up the contradiction of like the omnipresence of god and the right the withdrawal from russian doll 6-1 yeah there's that that contradiction the fact that like we have sacred places yet every place is sacred too and we kind of at least i mm -hmm. you know believe both of those things even though they kind of contradict each other or are in tension with each other and it relates to the whole unknowability uh, right of right of the of the divine you know it just points to the limits of what can be comprehended right so this relates to a paul tillich quote that i brought which is referring to that kind of omnipresent god an omni powerful god omnipotent there we go god that you were talking about and paul tillich says this kind of god deprives me of my subjectivity because he is all-powerful and all-knowing i revolt and make him into an object but the revolt fails and becomes desperate god appears as the invincible tyrant the being in contrast, contrast with whom all other beings are without freedom and subjectivity. He is equated with the recent tyrants who, with the help of terror, try to transform everything into a mere object, a thing among things, a cog in a machine they control. He becomes the model against which everything of existentialism revolted. This is the god Nietzsche said had to be killed because no one can tolerate being made into a mere object of absolute knowledge and absolute control. This is the deepest root of atheism. 
It is an atheism which is justified as the reaction against theological theism and its disturbing implications. Yeah, whoa. Good thing I don't subscribe to that or else I'd have to be dealing with that, you know? (laughs) That's what I have to say. So what Tillich is saying here is basically like the idea of God as a specific, all-powerful, all-knowing force he believes was inherently unsustainable because if you realize that God is all-powerful and all-knowing, you cannot help but feel that you are without freedom and subjectivity in comparison to God. And then basically your existence is meaningless and also a prison. Right, right, right. So you might as well just be an atheist. Right, which is fine. This is a atheist positive. I don't know. This is Atheism is fine. That's not what I'm worried about, although Tillich was concerned about it. But this is one of the reasons Tillich tried to come up with Tillich's quest in his own life was to find a way to harmonize his Christian theology with philosophy. And that's why he ended up coming up with his idea of the ground of all being, because he found the only tenable definition of God to be essentially that which makes being possible, that which contains being, and therefore is neither non-being nor being itself. Which again, this goes back to this whole withdrawal question. Yeah, 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 yeah. That does seem in line with what we were talking about, that Kabbalistic withdrawal thing. Right, and also feels very related to what we were talking about, about what makes places sacred is like, seems like for us is something like the contrast between human attention and human absence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it feels like that tension of dualities is like getting right back to this like divine presence, divine absence. Right, right. It's not like a topping on a pizza. That it's like, well, what makes it a pepperoni pizza is the pepperoni, you know. Yeah. And it's the presence yeah. of it's something else that is this yeah, that's almost indescribable. And so to me, to really like loop all the way back around, part of the reason why facing the synagogue east doesn't work, I think, is because I would say for most people, most of the time, for instance, cities are not sacred. And part of the reason is because we're all just living there all the time doing our stuff without paying attention to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And facing East is like that same dynamic. You need to have a moment of turning where you experience turning to a place where your attention was absent before. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. That's a very totally interesting paradigm for the construction of synagogues. <laughs> And where's the ark going to be? And where's the bima going to be? And where is that in relationship all to east? You know, if that's where we've decided that we want to turn. Architects, get on it. Figure it out. So I guess what I'm getting at relative to the listener's question is part of the reason the divine presence is everywhere is because all being is contained in the divine presence Mm. and also permeated by it, obviously. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Duh. Yeah. Um. <laughs> and so turning anywhere is equally sacred. And if that's a paradigm that works for you and for your own prayerful experience, then Baruch Hashem. But for me and for many others, the action of turning is necessary to experience the shift from inattention to attention that marks sacred experience. And There are ways to do that by turning east without interacting with the Zionist project. 
And there are ways to do that by turning anywhere but east without interacting with the Zionist project. So this has just been, I guess, essentially like a here, I hope, are some answers to your questions. And here is also Chava's complete theory of sacred place. I hope it is in some way helpful to you in navigating your own prayer decisions. Yeah, everyone just face towards my high school theater. <laughs> yeah, I assume that's where you face towards when you pray your daily prayers, Michael. Uh, <laughs> wow, just wow. Just wow. Golly, um, places sure can be sacred. Ooh, or not. They can be. Dope. That's the episode, people. I hope you got something out of it. I certainly got something out of it. I enjoyed taking some time to think about God as the ground of all being once again. Next week, who knows what we'll do? Not even I know. Maybe God knows. Depends if you're a theological theist or if you're a Tillichian. Either way, thank you so much for tuning in to my slash our slash God's bullshit. Mm-hmm. And Shavuot Tov. <laughs> Shavuot Tov. <laughs>